You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello again. I'm Monsignor Bill Smith. We are continuing with our consideration of the moral magisterium of Pope John Paul II. In our first segment, in our introduction, we looked at the presuppositions. We looked at the basics, namely the, the sources, particularly the sacred sources with which the Holy Father and conventional Catholic moral theology begins the moral teaching. In outline, what I tried to do is go along with the Holy Father's encyclical, Veritatis Splendor, which is on basic moral teaching. And if you will, those first 27 numbers, the first chapter, the first chapter goes over scriptural sources. And again, if I could suggest or resuggest that if you were to read along, and it's recommended that we do read along in the encyclical, read it with a New Testament at hand, so that these sources which are much richer than I could possibly convey in a matter of minutes or even hours, but that we make that our companion and our guide for our own nourishment and the nourishment of that teaching. I'd like in this segment to focus on the second chapter of Veritatis Splendor and at the same time corresponding parts of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It has to do basically with the understanding of human freedom, human freedom. Freedom, of course, is linked with responsibility. If we're going to talk about moral theology, if we're going to talk about morality at all, we have to come to terms with the notion of human freedom, the existence of free will, if you will, as at least a remote beginning. Because obviously, if, if we are not free, then questions of moral responsibility, be it achievement in virtue or guilt for wrongdoing, would be meaningless if we're not free. So if we were to go back to that section of the Catechism, uh, this doesn't look like the Catechism because it's not a book. What it is is the moral section that I've made my own. But if we go back to the third part of the Catechism, which concerns the moral life, it does start with these fundamentals. First, of course, our purpose in life. Where are we going? Where are we going? But then when it takes up the question of human freedom, it goes very carefully, and it links freedom with responsibility. In the more traditional moral teaching of the church, this is sometimes called human acts. Human acts are those acts which have a sufficiency of freedom. They are truly free. They proceed from a will with a knowledge of the end. That's what we call a human act. So there's a sufficient investment of freedom and a sufficient investment of knowledge. Therefore, the cognitive component, knowing what we're doing, and the volitional component, the component of the will, freely willing what we're doing, because both of these are important to construct what we call a human act. Obviously, if someone is forced, physically forced, there's a knife right at the jugular vein, if they're physically forced to do something against their will, we don't consider that a question of moral responsibility. On the other hand, if human knowledge is absent, if they have no idea what they're doing, they've taken some strange, wrong medication, and they don't know what they're doing, again, we don't consider this a question of moral responsibility. It's only when those two components are present in sufficiency, a sufficient investment of human freedom, a sufficient investment of human knowledge. That's what we truly call a human act. A human act is no other than an act which proceeds from the will with a knowledge of the end. And it's in those terms that we speak about uh, human responsibility, or if you will, the technical term, I suppose, is imputability. When we say that something is imputed to someone, that means, or at least suggests, that he or she did something freely and with knowledge, with adequate freedom and with adequate knowledge, so that it really is their 
It's their act. It's their doing. It's their doing. And the shoe of responsibility, of course, fits both feet. Now there are, I mean, if sometimes I think in misplaced compassion, we can always find reasons for saying someone didn't know what they were doing or didn't will what they were doing and therefore they're not responsible. But it also works the other way around. Now most of us, I suppose because of leftovers from original sin, we never invoke that when they're giving out Congressional Medal of Honors. If they're giving out the Congressional Medal, I've never heard someone come up to receive the medal and say, I had no idea what I was doing. And in fact, I did it against my will. Be a little bit silly. So that the concept of human freedom and adequacy of human knowledge is very important for what we call moral acts. Because for the, to be a moral act, there must be before that a human act, which is how we define something that proceeds from the will with the knowledge of the end. And that's what we call human freedom, at least in this context. Now, of course, there are some who belong to schools of thought that might deny the existence of free will. If that is so, then of course morality ends there. If there is no free will, there is no morality. There might even be forms of psychological determinism in a rather mechanical fashion where people think, well, if we just knew enough about the laws of cause and effect, that everything you do and everything I do could be explained physically in terms of cause and effect, almost like a Rube Goldberg machine where if you put pressure here, that bends the ladder there, that fills the cup there, when that overflows it does, and it's, the, it's as if it mechanics. But of course we would maintain, following the Bible, that the human person is made in the image and likeness of God. The image and likeness of God, at least in the spiritual dimension, are these two components. Just as freedom exists in God, just as knowledge exists in God, we never predicate that of machines. Even the fanciest machines, maybe even a super-duper computer that can defeat a world champion chess player. But nonetheless, someone programmed that machine to accomplish that outcome. But with humans, we do speak. And any other form of good and evil, we only predicate it of human acts. You might call a lawnmower a good lawnmower. That means it's good for doing what it's supposed to do. But that's not a moral statement. You can talk about a, a bad piano. Now maybe it's out of tune, but it's not a moral statement. You can even talk about a good book or a bad book. And again, I don't think it is a moral statement, but the person who wrote it, the person who created it, the person who edited it, the person who invested some of their freedom and some of their knowledge to bring it about, that's the only thing, a human act of which we predicate good and evil. And there are forms of behaviorism. Some people would say that if we knew enough about our environment, that would explain why you do what you do, why you avoid what you avoid. B.F. Skinner, in his famous book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, he actually held that uh, free will is an illusion, and in fact a dangerous illusion. Now I would credit him with some accomplishments he made in certain prison situations with people who are recidivists, but you gotta be careful about extrapolating, about taking something from a situation of pathology and then working it back on the whole human race and arguing that everyone is desperately sick. If everyone is desperately sick, we need medical care and medical help, not moralists. There are today, I suppose, forms of what are now called sociobiology. For the last 20 or 30 years, there was a big emphasis on behavioral, psychological behaviorism. But the sociobiology people are saying it's all in your genes. It's all chemistry. So not so much your external environment with its pushes and pulls that force you or induce you to do what you're doing, but as if it's some internal components. And in fact, that's a reflection of the 1920s when there was a ferocious eugenics movement in this country. It got a bad name with the Nazis in World War II. But in ways, eugenics is kind of coming back in a form of sociobiology. But Let's put it this way, if someone belongs to a school of thought that simply eliminates, that simply abrogates free will, then we have nothing more to discuss in morality. Because if there is no freedom, there cannot be any responsibility. So if we take that as a basic building block, one of the terms that we have to use to continue the grammar of this discussion about morality, we stick with the conventional term without overselling or underselling what we call 
what proceeds from the will with the knowledge of the end. Perhaps a little less freedom than some philosophers might talk, and perhaps maybe a little more than some psychologists, but just, I guess what we're trying to say is, look, there are some normal people who under normal circumstances are normally responsible for what they do, which means they have made a sufficient investment of free and knowing activity that this act is theirs. It is their doing, either for their credit or for their blame, because they are the origin and the author and the agent of this activity. Human freedom, very, very important, very fundamental point in fundamental moral theology. It's now then at the beginning of the second chapter of Veritatis Splendor that John Paul II takes up the question in Numbers 35 to 53 on what he calls freedom and law or freedom and truth. Now this, again, is a very important consideration. I suppose when you put as your title, freedom and law, I do not doubt that there are some folks in our society who really do not believe that those two words belong in the same sentence. Namely, that if you're talking about freedom, you shouldn't be talking about law. Or if you're talking about law, you shouldn't be talking about freedom. It's as if these two are contradictory. And that's one of the things that John Paul wants to focus on. Now remember, the title of the encyclical is Veritatis Splendor. And Veritatis has to do with truth. And his point is going to be, look, freedom is an important value, an extremely important, it's a uniquely human value, but freedom could become an unguided missile unless it is grounded in the truth and geared to the good, it could be an unguided. Now, the pro what's the problem with an unguided missile? You have no idea where it's going to land. And there are notions of false freedom and false autonomy, which have created lots of problems in our moral, and I think even in our social life. And that's what the Holy Father focuses on in one of the larger sections of this encyclical on the moral life and on moral theory. Possibly some people in the United States took a little bit of offense at this because it sounded like it was taking shots at the United States. I don't believe that that's true. However, in our cultural milieu, there is an emphasis of an individualistic type of autonomous freedom that is really destructive of morals if we're not careful about it. In fact, it was only a few years ago, I believe it was May of 1994, that a single federal district judge in the Western District of the state of Washington, sitting in Seattle, this judge, Barbara Rothstein, overturned a 140-year-old law in the state of Washington against assisted suicide. Now, only two years before, the citizens of the state of Washington voted to keep that law. And two years later, one federal judge struck it down, citing Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And in that, she pulled out one sentence. It's a sentence that's so important that I wrote it down. I carry it right close to my heart here. And I have it in my little book at all times. Quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define your own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe and the mystery of life. At the heart of liberty, so she's quoting Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was a 1992 decision, but she's using this to explain at the heart of liberty, and we're talking about freedom, is the right to define your own concept of existence, your own meaning, your own universe, universe, and the mystery of life. Now that would be what I call an extreme notion of absolute autonomy, that you have the right to define your own universe, really. Now, that, that's truly absolute autonomy. If that were true, then, of course, the word freedom, if that's the heart of liberty, then the word freedom and law would be very difficult to put in the same sentence. And here is where we have to try to follow, I think, what our Holy Father is trying to explain. Remember now, 
he keeps going back to sacred sources. And one of the things he did in the first chapter was to remind us about human freedom and bring us back to the type of autonomy that is proper to the human person. If you go back to the book of Genesis and you follow the narrative concerning Adam and Eve, they had human freedom. They had the freedom to name the birds and the bees. They had dominion over nature, if you will. And in their freedom, I suppose the ability to name was the ability to direct, which would allow for a certain amount of the subordination, if you will, in the hierarchy of creation. However, there was one thing they were not free to name, one thing. They could not determine right and wrong. They could not determine the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. The determination, the truth about the good and the truth about evil, that was determined by the Almighty. So although there was this human freedom, which is very, very important, then nonetheless, it was not an absolute human freedom. If you accept the notion that we are created, then there are certain limits of it. Now here I think if we pay attention, close attention, to the Holy Father's teaching, and in this case I believe a long teaching, because what's going to come together here, I hope, is a theme and a very important concept, I would argue a pervasive concept of the Second Vatican Council and of the moral teaching, especially the moral magisterium of John Paul II. How locate this? Consider, in short, some of the central teachings of the Second Vatican Council. One of them had to do with communio, as it's called. Communion, the church as a communion of the people of God. The church as both a sign and a sacrament of communion with God and union or communion with each other. Now, the Second Vatican Council sparked a certain trend, if you will, that was both community-centered and person-centered. The person-centered is sometimes called personalism. And I think sometimes our first reaction to this might be, well, now, wait a minute, slow down. Do these two really belong together when you're saying that something is community-centered and at the same time person-centered? Is this double talk? Are we talking on two different levels? Do these two really belong together? Is there not perhaps some opposition here? Or if so, how can we harmonize them? Well, let's look at the personalism of John Paul II. Personalism is a view of the human person which puts great and I think proper emphasis on the dignity of each individual as a child of God kind of a dynamic understanding of personalism, namely that they are called to fulfillment, especially through the free commitment to worthwhile goals and worthwhile values. Personalism, through the free commitment. If someone's commitment is not free, then it's not worthy of the name, it's not worthy of the person. But it is through their free commitment free commitment to worthwhile goals and values. Now, personalism, at the one hand, is very strongly conscious of personal freedom, your own and also the freedom of others. Personalism is conscious as well, and I think keenly aware of the dignity of human persons, and therefore any violations of dignity to yourself, or we must as be as sensitive to the violations of dignity in others. Conscious then, both of freedom and of dignity and rights, we should also be conscious of their correlation, if you will. That you really can't have a philosophy of rights without a corresponding philosophy of duties. But here, I believe, begins a little bit of a problem, at least perhaps in the American understanding. Genuine Christian personalism, the type of personalism that was taught by the Second Vatican Council, that sees no degradation in duty when we are obedient to the truth, when we are obedient to legitimate authority. In fact, the most peculiar, the special realization of the expression of human dignity is one's ability to discern and freely respond to values. Now here, I think, 
for some of our contemporaries, freedom means the absence of all restraint, the absence of all law. And if it's absolute, I would probably be talking about free fall rather than true freedom. But rather what the council was teaching, and I think what John Paul II teaches, is that the ability to discern freely and freely respond to the fulfillment of certain values, the fulfillment of certain duties, this is the key to the understanding of human freedom. In fact, Carol Wojtyla, as he was then called, as a professor at Lublin, where he taught moral theory and ethical theory, he wrote a book called The Acting Person. The Pope, when he was a priest, I think, before he was a bishop, maybe he was a bishop, he wrote a book called The Acting Person. Now, I, I must be completely candid with you. I have tried to read The Acting Person three times and have never succeeded. It is a very difficult book. It's opaque. But there's one sentence that I understand. Page 179 of The Acting Person says, the person realizes himself most adequately in the fulfillment of his obligations. The person, the human person, realizes himself most adequately in the fulfillment of his obligations. Respect for the fulfillment of those obligations. That book is difficult, but a couple of years separated in time, the Pope also wrote a book called Love and Responsibility, largely about human sexuality, very much about the covenant of marriage. And in there, I think he makes it much clearer. It's a much easier book to read. And basically what's being said then is personalism stresses both our duties to others and that our fulfillment, our fulfillment provided it's a free fulfillment, is actually the means of personal growth for us and the key to self-fulfillment. The key text for this, I believe, is in the Second Vatican Council, Gaudium et Spes, number 24. That's the document on the church in the modern world. And actually the Pope, as a bishop, contributed to the formation of this. And that sentence says, and I quote it, it is only through a sincere gift of self that man can find himself. It is only through a sincere gift of self that man can truly find or fulfill himself. That, I believe, is the key text. Why? I believe that is what the acting person is saying. That's what you will find in the book, Love and Responsibility. And in 1994, the Holy Father wrote a letter to families. A letter to families. It's a much shorter document. It's a beautiful document. And in paragraph 11 of it, it is all about this sincere gift of self, which is the key to marital love, to Christian love, to Christian behavior. And in fact, by mistake almost, I had the opportunity to write a commentary on paragraph 12 of the letter to families, which appeared in the Italian edition of the Observatorio Romano. Now, I did not know before that that everything that is written in the Italian edition of the Observatorio Romano had to go through the Papal Secretariat of State office. And although mine was on paragraph 12, I mentioned in it that this sentence Gaudium Spes, number 24, it's only through a sincere gift of self that you can truly find or fulfill yourself. I made the remark that this sentence of the Council is quoted by the Holy Father more than any other sentence in all the years that he's been Pope. And a couple of weeks after, I got a letter from Cardinal Sodano, who was the Papal Secretary of State, thanking for the contribution. And in it, he said, the Pope said, tell the priest he's right. And it was. He has quoted this more often than anything else, that it's only through a sincere gift of yourself that you will find or fulfill yourself. If you go to the council document, you will check, and the footnote says, Luke 17, 33. That's the verse that says, whoever loses his life will find it, whoever finds his life will lose it. How many times we read these paradoxes? The first will be last and the last first. If you want to become great, you better become small. I came not to be served, but to serve. To find your life is to lose it. Sometimes I think we either leave church or walk away from our Bible somewhat scratching our head, wondering, hmm, this is a puzzle. This is not a puzzle. 
Well, it has puzzling aspects, but what it is is a transforming truth. If we put that one into practice, it changes us, because it is true. Any love that does not transcend itself is not worthy of the name. We are not degraded by fulfilling the truth, by the truth of the gospel, or the truth of the church, or the truth of the scriptures. We are not less a human being by freely responding to those worthwhile goals and values, but in fact, we will find ourselves through a sincere gift of ourselves in a response to the truth about love and the truth about life. Therefore, when the Holy Father takes up the question about law and freedom, truth and freedom, these are not opposites clashing and clamoring to be separated forever. But if properly understood, if we freely give ourselves to the truth, respectful of human persons, respectful of their freedom, and respectful of their dignity, we will not be less a human being. Actually, that's how we will find and fulfill ourselves. It's pretty much what my parents taught me when I was a kid. The point was, you never stand so tall as when you bend down to help someone else up. And that's the truth of the gospel. This is not simply a concilia teaching. It is not simply, what would I say, a piece of uh, Polish philosophy. This is gospel teaching. This is gospel. Because if we think it through, is not this the truth about Jesus? Did not our Lord make a sincere gift of himself? Isn't that what St. Paul means, the kinetic theory, nice Greek word for emptying? Although he was by nature God, he put aside the prerogatives of God, took on our limited nature for what? For his benefit? No, for our benefit. He emptied himself. He made a sincere gift of himself, in fact, a gift of his life for our benefit. And he did it freely, freely. He didn't have to do it. He freely willed to fulfill his Father's will, freely to fulfill the plan of salvation which brought about our salvation. That generous gift of self, that sincere gift of self, what could be more at odds with this absolute notion of absolute individual autonomy? Tell me this little point from our highest court. At the heart of liberty is the right to define your own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life. I don't think I can find anything more at odds with that than what I find in the Council and in the Scriptures. Rather, it is only through a sincere gift of self that one can find or fulfill himself. And it's in that sense of Christian personalism then that we could be both community-centered and person-centered at the same time. In fact, if one makes a sincere gift of self, this not only harmonizes with the community, it's probably the only actual condition for a really healthy community. And I think it should be clear, this is very, very different from the notion of secular individualism that has been very prominent and growing more so in our society for a long time, perhaps in our secular education, at least since maybe John Dewey, and a long time in our legal circles since Oliver Wendell Holmes. The modern outlook is entirely different. Basically, individualism is the enemy of community. We have finally reached the point in our own country where people are saying things like, am I my brother's keeper? Well, that used to be a rhetorical question. We all once knew the answer to that. The question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that is yes. Or maybe even more fundamental, am I my brother's brother? And the answer was yes. But if we keep pushing a kind of radical notion of absolute individual autonomy, then notions of community become thinner and thinner and thinner. Now here is where, in very Veritatis Splendor, the Holy Father comes back and talks about genuine moral autonomy. Genuine moral autonomy, he says in number 41, in no way 
involves a rejection, but rather is the acceptance of the moral law. The Lord God gave this command. Human freedom and God's law meet and they intersect. And it's here that simply by saying yes to the truth of the gospel or yes to the truth of the scriptures, we are not less a human being. In fact, we're more of a human being. In fact, the council teaches we will find our very fulfillment in that free yes. Your moral journey or mine isn't worthy of the name unless it's free. Your free choices make you who you are. My free choices make me who I am. Freedom is a very, very important, and sometimes we must understand a precious commodity, precious and a fragile commodity. But it's not just freedom in the sense of being free to do whatever I want, or freedom in the sense of free fall, but it's the free response to say yes to the truth and say yes to the good, to the truth about the good. That, in the sense, is what the church is teaching, that the freedom basically is man's freedom is patterned on God's freedom, following the example of Jesus, and it is not negated by obedience to divine law. If we look carefully at the example of Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed and he prayed hard that if this challenge could pass, if this cup could pass, if this chalice could pass, if this agony and suffering could pass, if it could pass, let it pass. But whether it passes or not passes, thy will be done. He prays freely to accept the will of his Father. Now that was a free act. His dignity was not lessened. I think his dignity was enhanced because he said yes to the truth about God and the truth of revelation. And this, I believe, is what is very important when we go back to look at the notion there's no question about the importance of human freedom in what we call human acts. And those components, knowing what we're doing, willing what we're doing, but remember, it's not some kind of sovereign self. We're not free when there are no laws. And some people look at it that way. They say, look, we have enough laws in the state. We have laws from the federal government. We have regulations from everyone. At least when I go to church, I don't want to hear about laws. Well, look, the truth about the good is if you and I say yes to that truth and we say it freely, then that law is not burdensome, nor is it basically a degradation if what the Council teaches is true, and it's got to be true because it's what the Gospel teaches, it's really through a sincere gift of yourself that you will find yourself. And the Pope takes some effort all the way through that second chapter because there are certain moral theories that have been around that on the one hand they do tend to exalt human freedom, but they've made the human person as Karl Rahner described it, as a freedom event. As a freedom event, that what really makes us human is our freedom. But he introduces a kind of dualism that's unfortunate, as if our body isn't really what makes us human. It's really only our free choices that make us human. And this is a very inadequate understanding, because if we go with the Catholic tradition, we are as much the soul of our body as we are the body of our soul. Now, one part of that is this marvelous gift that God gave us in imitation of himself, that we use this knowledge and freedom to direct our moral lives. And we should, and we can. And therefore, the Pope tries to explain that any doctrine which disassociates a moral act from the bodily dimensions of the human person is something that's really contrary to what we find in Holy Scripture. Because what we find in Holy Scripture is the continuity and this composite where they really belong together. So maybe we could pose it as a different question. Is it possible? Is it possible to be both a servant and free? Both a servant and free. And if we do choose to serve, if we do choose to make a gift of ourselves, and freely so, freely so, then that type of service does not diminish us, it enhances us. 
That's what we see in the life of Jesus. He said he came not to be served, but to serve. That didn't degrade him or lessen him, but actually it highlighted what was most important about his free gift of himself, which is what we have to try to imitate. So one of the fundamental points that comes up is this question about human freedom. You can't talk. You can't even allow misunderstanding to the extent that somehow we would downplay human freedom. We can't do that. We don't want to do that. We want to highlight it. But we want to follow, I think, the important teaching in the moral magisterium of John Paul II that freedom is not just an abstraction and it's not just some kind of a thing that's floating around. Freedom has to be rooted or grounded in the truth and then geared toward the good, geared toward the good and to its fulfillment. And that way we should be able to honor both of those realities. That's why when we look at the catechism, the catechism will talk of freedom and responsibility, and properly so. And we want to respect that. Then the catechism will move to what it calls the morality of human acts, the morality of human acts. If you will, you have to have what we call a human act before you can have a moral act. The human act focuses on what we can do, what we can do. The moral act focuses on what we ought to do. Now, if you can't do it, there's no sense talking about what you ought to do if, in fact, you can't. But if free will exists, if there are such things as human acts, namely they proceed from the will with a knowledge of the end, then we begin to try to predicate that of what we call good and evil. Now, I must admit, as we go through Veritatis Splendor, that section, 35 all the way up to 53, is readable. It really is. It's readable. And 54 to 64, which concerns conscience and the truth, is also readable. Fundamental option, mortal and venial sin, short little paragraphs, that's readable. But when we get to section 71 to 83, which has to do with the fonts of morality, the fonts of morality, that we need perhaps a little guide to get us through the black forest. And that's really what we call the fonts or the sources of morality. The technical term is the fontes moralitatis, which is just Latin for the sources of morality. How do we approach that in Catholic tradition? Here, it's not a question, basically, about why murder is wrong or why telling the truth is good. What concerns us in the area of moral theory here is on what basis? What are the sources? What are the determinants? What are the factors? What elements count in predicating good and evil of human acts? When we say murder is a wrong kind of act and truth-telling is a good kind of act, on what basis do we rest such statements? And here, different ethical theories come into play and deserve examination. And I think, although it has never really been the case, the church never defines philosophy just for the sake of defining philosophy. But in this section of Veritatis Splendor, number 71 to 83, the Holy Father comes as close to canonizing the analysis of St. Thomas Aquinas as is possible. He doesn't say it's the only way to do it, but he does in effect say there is no other way to do it. Now that may sound like a contradiction, but what the Pope does is he goes back to that part of St. Thomas's Summa, the Summa Theologiae, the first part of the second part, question 18, and he goes through it almost step by step. Maybe we can try to summarize and convey that by reading the appropriate section of the Catechism, which is basically Numbers 1749 through 1761. What are we talking about? We're going to try to find a basis for predicating good and evil of human actions. And what do we base it? And traditionally, the Catholic tradition says three things are relevant. Three things are relevant. First of all, the kind of act that we're talking about, namely what they call the object chosen, personal intentions, and relevant circumstances. What do we mean? What we're saying is basically, you cannot really 
collapse morality into physicality. For instance, if I had a photograph of someone with a very sharp instrument piercing an abdomen here, I'd ask you, from the photograph, tell me, what's going on? Well, you'd be difficult, you'd be pressed to say, maybe this is a surgeon operating on diseased appendix, or you could say, um, gee, it's a mugger separating someone from their holdings. So from the sheer physical analysis of actions, you're not going to really draw the morality. And yet the fact is you can't have a murder unless there's been a killing. You can't have a stealing unless there's been a taking. You can't have truth-telling or lying unless there's been some speech. You can't collapse it into the physical, but you can't prescind from the physical. But the first question we ask is, and we say, as St. Thomas teaches, that Actions are specified by their object, by their moral object. Not just the physical taking, the physical killing, or the physical thing. That's the mere physical object. But the moral object, that is, it has an intelligible understanding with a relation to the moral order. So what kind of an act is it? And it's on that basis that we say stealing, taking against the reasonable will of the owner, is a wrong kind of act. We're not asking the question yet about conscience, whether this fellow knew that he didn't own the AMP, or whether he uh, was uh, disturbed or had obstacles or what have you. It's just when we say stealing is a wrong kind of act, we're making a generic statement about the kind of act that it is in its moral estimation, not just physically. Now, you have to do something in some concrete circumstances, and circumstances cannot change the type of act that it is, but it can aggravate them or diminish them. It's almost the adverb questions you learn in English grammar, how, when, where, by what means. I mean, essentially, is there a difference between a con artist who separates you from $50 and somebody who uses physical force to take $50? Essentially, it's the same kind of act, but circumstantially, one uses force, one uses trickery. But if I ask you morally what's going on, it's theft. Also, of course, is the person's intention, their motive, their doing. Why are they doing this? Obviously, that's not inherent in the act. That comes from the doer of the action. That's something that's external. It comes from outside. Now, the challenge in Catholic moral teaching is that no single criterion is the only criterion. If we were followers of Immanuel Kant, we would say his ethical formalism all that matters is the uprightness of the upright intention, duty for duty's sake. If we were utilitarians, followers of John Stuart Mill, we could say, well, you judge all actions by their consequences. If it brings about more good results, it's a good kind of act. If it brings about more bad results, it's a bad kind of act. And that's called kind of consequentialism or utilitarianism. But since we are followers of St. Thomas Aquinas, his integral view is that we pay attention to the kind of act it is, to the morally relevant circumstances, and the personal intention. So it has to be a good kind of act, or at least neutral, in good circumstances for good reason, good intention. Then we will call it a good kind of act. There's a little Latin maxim. Bonum, which means goodness. Bonum ex intrica causa. Goodness comes from the fullness of those sources. Malum, evil, ex quicumque defecto. That comes from anyone that's missing. So if we do a good kind of act for the wrong reason, or a wrong kind of act for a generous reason, that is something St. Thomas would say is not really a good kind of act. That's not really morally good. And that teaching is repeated in the Catechism. That teaching is clarified with great precision in Veritatis Splenda, because what's lurking behind it is a basic biblical principle. St. Paul says in Romans 3.8 that the end does not justify the means. What does that mean? That a good personal intention or end will not justify a wrong means or act to accomplish that good purpose. Recall the question that was posed to St. Paul. Some people said to him, well, let's do a little evil so that great good comes about. And St. Paul says in Romans 3.8, no, no, such people will be condemned as they deserve, he writes. We must admit that's a cardinal moral principle in the Catholic understanding, but we shouldn't kid ourselves. It makes things harder. It makes things more challenging. Because if all we had to do was concern ourselves with a generous intention, we wouldn't have to pay attention to consequences. We wouldn't have to pay attention to maybe what we unleash in the world. We just have to say, well, 
I had an upright intention, I had a generous intention, everyone else is either, I don't know, a cheapskate or a drudge. Now, if all that mattered was not so much the intention, but all that mattered was the consequences, if it brings about more good resultancies than bad ones, well, that's utilitarianism. Whereas what Catholic tradition teaches is that all three of these factors, all three of these fonts, as they're called, all three of these sources are relevant. And therefore, all of them have to be good for an act to be called plain and simple good. It might be difficult to convey in a short time, but it's largely in this area of moral theory that there have been many revolutions, dissents, and vigorous disagreements within the household of the church in the last 20 or 25 years. Various theories called consequentialism or proportionalism have been proposed in some academic circles, which now, according to the encyclical Veritatis Splendor, number 75, says very clearly that these deviant theories, variant theories, are simply not compatible with Catholic teaching. What are they saying? Basically, what some of them are saying, they're very troubled by the notion, which was taught by the Council, Gaudium et Spes, number 27, that there's any kind of action which in itself is a wrongful kind of action. It's simply wrong in itself. They're saying as a general rule, you can say that, but in concrete particulars, in concrete material actions, you really shouldn't say that. Why? They say, well, it's a general rule that's usually good. It's usually exceptionless. One of them even says virtually exceptionless, but you must always leave open the possibility that in some set of circumstances, something that is generally wrong really isn't in that circumstance if you have a proportionate reason for doing what you're doing or if you bring about a greater good, a greater good. Now, basically, these are utilitarian theories, camouflaged, camouflaged as Catholic theories. And the Pope points out that this is an incorrect theory. Why? Well, if we go and we were to read number 75 of Veritatis Splendor, we will see that some of the camouflage comes up with a little verbal terminology. Uh, namely, a classic example is adultery is wrong. Adultery is wrong. As a formal norm, that's one of the Ten Commandments. No one argues about that. But some of the authors will say, well, as a material norm, as a concrete material thing, in general, that's a good rule. But could you foresee a certain set of circumstances in which some greater good or proportionate reason is fulfilled? And then what would normally be morally evil, in that case, wouldn't be morally evil. It would merely be, oh, they call it a nontic evil or a physical evil or a premoral disvalue or something. Now, notice what's happening. I know the, the terminology is getting kind of technical. And most people find close examination of principles sometimes very close to anatomy. It's about as interesting as checking bones in the museum. But it's very important. And this is very important because a little change in principle here changes one's whole moral theory, one's whole moral theory. What would happen, of course, is if, in fact, you took a norm like adultery is wrong and say, well, it's almost always wrong, but but you must leave open the possibility of some set of circumstances where it wouldn't really be morally wrong if you have a proportionate reason for doing what you're doing. Okay, what happens there? Who is going to make the judgments about whether a proportionate reason is proportionate? Well, obviously, the choosing subject. Me choosing for me, you choosing for you. This is also relativistic. Because we're saying that the action itself isn't really good or evil, but it only becomes so in relation to consequences or in relation to individual reasons. Some are going to say that actually this is the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas, and that's incorrect. Because if you look in the Secunda Secunda, question 64, article 6, he asks the question, is it ever legitimate to directly kill the innocent? He says, no. In fact, he says, licit nullo modo. Nullo modo is Latin for no way. It is never licit to kill the innocent, even for a proportionate reason, even if it accomplishes a greater good. So what happens is people have taken terminology that's somewhat familiar in, in Catholic circles, 
but they're actually proposing an ethical theory that is quite different. It's quite different. And that actually brings about a revolution in the changing. Because the big shift in the focus is to move from some objective consideration of objective right and wrong to a subjective consideration of whether the subject considers it right and wrong. So you have moved from at least one objective referent, namely what we call the moral object, what the catechism calls the moral object in 1751 of the catechism. It's a concise thing, but it's one that we should read very carefully, what they call the moral object. And that is our only link, really, with objective morality. Circumstances, we say, yes, that can modulate things. It can increase or decrease, aggravate or diminish the moral species of an action, but it won't change it. And then, of course, the personal intention, that personal component, is crucial. It's absolutely crucial. But again, it's only one of the components. And the traditional teaching points out that all of these sources have to be good for us to say that this is a good kind of act as a kind of act. If any one of them is wrong, we can't call it a good kind of act. Again, to repeat what I said before, this is more challenging. This is more challenging. If all we had to do was consider intentionality, well, then that's a single criterion. If all we had to do is add up results, good consequences versus bad consequences, some kind of moral calculus like that, then that arithmetic would answer everything. But if, in fact, we have to take all the factors into consideration, the kind of act it is in its moral estimation, the relevant moral circumstances, and the personal individual intention, that's the fullness that we see in our Catholic tradition that is very much what is emphasized in Veritatis Splendor. In fact, that moral analysis most associated with St. Thomas Aquinas is almost canonized there. Now, I know that part the first part, I think, on human freedom, we can learn basically by making distinctions about what we read in the newspapers. The second part, I think the best thing to do is read that little section on the moral blacks in the catechism. Read carefully what's in Veritatis Splendor. I grant you it's a little bit more boring, it's a little bit abstract, but it's crucial. And it's really an important component of the moral magisterium of John Paul II because the notion of ethical theory and moral reasoning obviously will apply to all the individual applications that are made in the moral magisterium of the same pope. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.